listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Is there a particular sin that once committed is unforgivable? Can you commit an unpardonable, an unforgivable sin? Could you possibly commit an unforgivable sin? Some of us walk around in the course of our lives with a lot of guilt, a lot of heavy baggage, because we are not sure that we can be truly forgiven of whatever it is, fill in the blank, whether you've done it once or twice or a multitude of times. The question is, is there a sin that is unforgivable? That's an important question not only to ask, but also to answer, because in the Bible, sin creates separation. That's the biblical understanding of death presented in the Bible is separation in the book of Genesis, for example. When God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat this fruit, it's not that there was something intrinsically magic about that fruit, it was that there was something intrinsically important about the decision they made about whether their love for God would be voluntary or not, who they would love. And so when Adam took the fruit, He was kicked out of the garden and away from the presence of God that very day. He lived for 900 some years, but immediately he was kicked out of the garden. Eve was kicked out of the garden. They were separate. There was distance between Adam and Eve, and you and I have been living outside of Eden ever since. Physical death is a evidence of spiritual death. We were created to be in the presence of God forever. But when Adam sinned, sin came into the world through Adam. Sin came into the world through Adam. And when that happened, separation happened with it. Spiritual death. And so the question is very important. If there is a sin that someone commits or someone can commit, if it is unpardonable, that means that somebody would then be going into an eternity apart from the presence of God. And that's a pretty significant thing. So what we're going to do, because this is such a significant topic, is I'm going to open the Word of God. We're going to look at the Word of God together today in Luke chapter 12. And then we're going to hopefully have a little bit of time where you might have a question. We're going to have a question and answer time. Because the simplest questions often have the most difficult answers. And I know that as I answer this question, is it possible to commit a sin that's unforgivable? It might raise another question or two. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask a question and follow up. We have microphones here. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say this to his disciples first. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered, what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. The principle of being a hypocrite, the idea of hypocrisy, the definition of hypocrite or hypocrisy doesn't come from dictionary.com. It comes from the what the Bible presents as hypocrisy and what a hypocrite is. That the Pharisees are Jesus, uh, even though they might not have been willing party to this, willing participants in it, the Pharisees are Jesus 
Jesus' example, Jesus' object lesson for what hypocrisy is. A hypocrite is a misguided, inept person in a leadership position who can't do anything else but replicate themselves. That's what a hypocrite is. How do we come to that conclusion? We come to it based on the context of the object lesson that Jesus provides, which is the Pharisees. And we talked about that the majority of our time last week together, and I promised that we would get to this issue of an unpardonable sin. Did I promise that? Can I get an amen for that? So I'm going to deliver on that promise. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on that today. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. All of us struggle with time, from time to time, of feeling unworthy. But there's a difference between being unworthy and being worthless. Jesus says, you have it on the authority of Jesus coming out of his mouth, that you are worth far more than many sparrows. You are not worthless. You are worth far more than many sparrows. Now, we all feel unworthy, but it's different to feel unworthy. None of us is worthy of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nobody was, nobody is, nobody will be. Nobody. But there's a huge difference between being unworthy and being worthless. Jesus says you are worth a great deal to him. You're worth a great deal to God the Father. Can I get an amen for that? The next time you find yourself feeling worthless, you take that ridiculous thought, that thought that is opposed to the teachings of Jesus, and you set it aside and you replace it with the word of God, God's remedy for stinking thinking, the word of God, you replace it with what Jesus says. You are worth a great deal. Jesus wouldn't die for junk. God the Father would not have given his one and only priceless son if you were worthless. Verse 8. Luke 12, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge also before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite phrase about himself, the Son of Man, everyone who speaks a word against Jesus, the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't worry about how you're going to respond to your boss or your coworker or your people in your neighborhood or family members uh, about giving testimony for Jesus. There are people right now in prison. There's a woman in Sudan. You probably have heard about her. She's pregnant and she has an 18-month-old. She's in prison because of her testimony for Jesus. That is faith, huh? All they asked her was this little thing, deny your faith in Jesus and we'll let you go. And she says, no, but it would help your child who's 18 months old. And she says, no, but it would help your unborn child who we're going to let you give birth to that child and then we're going to kill you. We're going to hang you. All we're asking is that you deny your faith in Jesus. And she says, no. 
She has got to be, and she is, relying on the Holy Spirit to give her the right words in the midst of her persecution. That is faith that matters. She's holding on to Jesus, and that's what we're told here. Don't worry about circumstances and situations that you might be in to give testimony to Jesus at the right time. If you're walking in surrender, as that woman in Sudan is, the Holy Spirit will give you the right word at the right time for the right impact. See how much there is in the word of God that we could spend weeks just on these 12 verses alone? See, before we get to this issue of the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says is unforgivable, before we get to that, we have this small issue, eternally speaking, this small issue in light of eternity, and it's a four-letter word, it's in verse five, it's this issue of hell. Now, I'm being facetious when I say it's a small issue, it's actually huge, It's a massive issue because Jesus indicates that hell is a real place and that people go there and that it's permanent. It's a forever situation. Verse five, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, some have postulated that this is, since it's the word that's used in the Greek, Gehenna, this is Jesus talking about the physical place that was a real place in Israel called Gehenna. It's a transliteration from the Hebrew, which is the Valley of Hinnom. In Second Chronicles chapter 28, there's a king named Ahaz who's one of the sons of David, and he was a godless king. He actually sacrificed his own sons in Gehenna, in the Valley of Hinnom, in the fire. He took his sons and sacrificed them as an offering to false gods in that south, southeast area outside Jerusalem. That's what he did in that place called Gehenna, in that Valley of Hinnom. That's what he did. It's a literal physical place. And Jesus is referring to a literal physical place called Gehenna. And he's referring with a small G, so to speak, and a literal place with a capital G. Jesus is likening the ultimate hell to the, the hell that they could be familiar with, the Gehenna that was there in that day. Now, we know that Gehenna is a real place. In fact, I slept there. A number of years ago, I was in Israel. And the place that my Swiss friend and I were hanging out, we were partying, having a Christian party all day long. Now, what I mean by that is we were visiting biblical sites. We were visiting sites that were in the Bible, historically significant places. We just stayed out a little bit too late doing that. And when we came back to the place where we were supposed to sleep, we were locked out. And we said, no worries, no problem. We'll just sleep down in that valley down there. So we slept in the valley. Fortunately enough, it was warm enough. We slept out there under the stars in what we found out to be later was the historical site of Gehenna. We slept in hell. So you could say in a very literal sense, I've been to hell and back. (laughs) In Jesus' day, Gehenna was a place that was affiliated with Fire. Look with me at Mark chapter 18, verse 9, and then we're going to look at, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 18, verse 9, and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 9. This became a place, a garbage refuge, a place where garbage was placed. In Matthew 18, 9, if your eye causes you to sin, Jesus says, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire, the Gehenna 
But not just the Gehenna in the literal sense of what Jesus was talking about in that day, the literal sense theologically, the ultimate hell, the ultimate Gehenna, the fire of judgment. Look with me at Mark chapter 9. Jesus, a parallel passage, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Here it comes, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is an eternal fire that Jesus is referring to, a fire that never goes out. See what would happen in the literal Gehenna, the physical Gehenna in the south-southeast portion of Jerusalem, just outside of that area where I was talking about. People would dump their garbage. No Jew would be seen going into Gehenna lest you would make yourself ceremonially unclean. And if you're a worm, it's smorgasbord time. It's time to eat until your heart's content. You could eat all the garbage you wanted to. The worms never die in Gehenna. The fire never went out because they were burning garbage. But Jesus says, as liberal scholars would say, be careful you don't get taken to a garbage heap. What? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus getting them all worried and all concerned and all flustered about being taken to a literal place, geographically speaking, that they were all familiar with and that's the the lot of their life, that it's just a geographical place where garbage is burned and worms are eating garbage? Is that what it's all about? No, Jesus is doing what he always does, what he often does. He looks at commonplace things around the people. And he uses illustrations that they could relate to, farming illustrations. When Jesus asks the disciples, who do men say that I am? They say, you are the Christ. He did that in Caesarea Philippi with a backdrop of all these idols that Jesus was standing in front of, most likely saying, who do you say that I am in the midst of all these gods that people are worshiping? And here Jesus was using Gehenna in a very similar way. You know that garbage heap that you're familiar with where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out? Well, you know what? There's a literal hell that people go to. And you shouldn't be concerned about the fact that God might send you to a garbage heap. It's much more serious than that. Liberal scholars would say, well, Jesus wasn't talking about a literal hell. He was talking about Gehenna. Well, really? Jesus was getting people all up in arms about a garbage heap? No, he was getting people concerned about the reality of an eternity that somebody can spend separated from God in the unquenchable fire where it's eternal. Look with me at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. See, the Bible is the best commentary on itself. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. You want to know what one passage of Scripture says? You let another passage of Scripture interpret it. Verse 11, Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne. This is what's known as the great white throne judgment. And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, physical death. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. In other words, nothing escapes this judgment, each one of them according to what they had done. 
Verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death or the eternal separation. See, there's physical death, which reminds us of spiritual death. This is the second death, which is the lake of fire. Next verse. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the reality of the the hell that Jesus is speaking about, that we should have a reverence for God, that type of a fear. It's not like walking in New Jersey in certain parts of of New Jersey late at night. It's not that type of a fear. There are places you shouldn't go and you should be afraid of, but this is a reverence for God who has the ability to send people to this ultimate final destination in an eternity where there is, it's likened to fire. It's likened to a place where the worm never dies. It's a place of eternal torment. You might say, I can't believe that a loving God would send people into an eternity separate from him. You don't understand how holy God is. God is not just loving, he's also holy. And if we come to that conclusion that God would never send people into an eternity separate from him, then why don't we get concerned about our own behavior and our own choices? Because the cross reminds us of your sin and mine. It reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We miss God's bullseye, which is perfection. God requires perfection. And aren't you glad that God has provided for what he requires, payment for sin, through what Jesus did on the cross? That's what it's all about, that Jesus died in your place. He died in mine, that you don't have to. I don't have to. Nobody has to spend an eternity separate from God, the second death in the lake of fire that never goes out, the unquenchable fire. Nobody has to spend time there. We choose to go there by rejecting Jesus. As long as you have breath, as long as I have breath, there is time. As long as we have capacity, there is time to repent and to avoid the second death and eternal separation from God. Now, let's get back to this business of the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. By the way, I would close by saying Jesus believes hell is a real place. Jesus does. Jesus believes that people go there who reject him. Jesus says that. I'm not saying that. Jesus says that. If we want to change the words of Jesus, I'll let you deal with that when you stand before the Lord. I know that there are people who disagree with that. However, I am simply reading the Bible. And if the literal sense makes sense, everything else is nonsense. I don't need to put words into Jesus' mouth. I don't need to add things to what's in the Bible. My goodness, we're only spending a few minutes today looking at a handful of scriptures. We could spend an eternity spending our lives understanding scripture. And in fact, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, by the undeserved favor of God, will do precisely that. We will spend an eternity being taught by God what it all means and all those questions that you have that are not now answered. All the mysteries about Christ that you're contemplating in this current life and all the things about God and the universe and creation and all those questions that have you wondering, I'd like an answer for that. You will have an eternity if you know Jesus Christ in the presence of God living with him where sense will be made out of what might now seem to be insensible. 
Look with me at Luke chapter 12, verse 8. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, this is an idea, the word that's used there, acknowledges, this is in an ongoing way. Anybody who's in a state of, as a matter of practice, acknowledges Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus, also will acknowledge before the angels of God that acknowledging Jesus in this current life, living for Jesus in this current life as an overflow of saving faith, one day Jesus will acknowledge you before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men, the one who is in a state of denial, Jesus, of denying Jesus, one who's in a state of denial about who Jesus is as an ongoing manner, the one who denies me before men will be denied the finality before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus, will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, Luke doesn't elaborate on that, but Matthew and Mark do. We'll let the Bible interpret itself, and so we want clarity on what is this unforgivable sin called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. If we look at Matthew chapter 12, look with me. Easy to remember, we've got Luke chapter 12, we've got Matthew chapter 12 in verse 22. Look with me at the parallel passage here that explains it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this, watch this now, Can this be the son of David? That's a phrase dealing with the messianic identity of Jesus. Can this be the one spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where God promised that he would send a prophet like Moses? This is a messianic phrase, a title that the people are recognizing. Could this be that one? Could this be the son of David? Why are they concluding that? Because any good Jew knew that the Messiah's ministry, the identity of the Messiah, was to be confirmed by miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus performed miraculous signs and wonder. A demon-oppressed guy is set free, and they immediately connect the dots and say, ha-ha, something, multiple things repeatedly in the Old Testament remind us that the Messiah will be recognized by the Jewish people by the miraculous signs and wonders that he performs. And so that's why they're coming to this question. The question that they're asking comes in that context. In Italian, we would say, capisce? Understand? Can this be the son of David? Verse 24, But, mm -mm -mm. when the Pharisees heard it, they said it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is the original big gulp. Because that statement is going to be the death of them. It's only by Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. That's what that name means. They are likening Jesus to the Lord of the flies. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is the verdict of the Pharisees. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? 
And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Because exorcism among the Jews was able to be done. They were able to do that, but not with the ease in which Jesus did it, speaking a word. Therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Jesus helping them understand what should have been obvious to them. The reason why the demons are submitting to me is because I've bound them up. I've taken care of them. I'm stronger than the demons. That's the whole thing that Jesus is teaching. Then indeed, verse 29, he may plunder his house. Verse 30. Whoever's not with me is against me. An aphorism. The obvious statement. You're not on my side. You're on the enemy's side. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy, a condescending statement. That's what a blasphemy is. An inappropriate statement. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Finality, permanence. Look with me at Mark chapter 3. Look with me at Mark chapter 3, 22. The scribes, see it's the Pharisees and the scribes that have this problem. The Pharisees, those who taught the law, taught the word of God. The scribes, those who wrote the law, wrote the word of God. The leaders of Israel, the ones who would reject Jesus as their savior, as their Messiah. It's the Pharisees and the scribes, quote unquote, spiritually speaking, in bed together. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, when Jesus says truly, he especially means pay attention. I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And so Luke chapter 12 mentions this idea of an unforgivable sin. And then Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3 help us understand, fill in the blanks, get some understanding as to what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is the unpardonable sin? It is attributing the works of Jesus to the devil. It is something that happened in Jesus' day in the physical presence of the Pharisees and the scribes who would have known the teaching of the Old Testament and how the Messiah was to be identified, and it is attributing the works of Jesus to the devil. It is to be so royally deceived and so hardened of heart in the midst of being eyewitnesses to what Jesus was doing. See, they, that, that, that you are totally coming to the wrong perverted 
obtuse conclusion about who Jesus is. They are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Look with me at Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. What would lead the Pharisees to say those things? Well, it simply has to come down to a matter of their heart. Luke 6, 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See, the reason why the Pharisees and the scribes had things coming out of their mouth about the identity of Jesus, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, is because of what was going on in their hearts. And it says, as we read earlier, that Jesus knew their thoughts. Jesus knew the condition of their hearts. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is something that is tied historically to the Pharisees and the scribes and them being in the literal, physical presence of Jesus, observing all of his miraculous signs and wonders, knowing what the scriptures teach about him, and then still coming to the conclusion that he is guided, directed by Satan. That's what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. You say, well, how is that different than them rejecting Jesus? Well, look with me at 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, we see how Scripture interprets Scripture. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. See, Jesus, talking about his ability to perform miraculous signs and wonders under the inspiration or the power of the Holy Spirit is one of the clearest revelations to us. Another nod, another affirmation and the direction of what the Scriptures teach from Genesis to Revelation about the Trinity. That there was one God eternally existent in three persons. And Jesus is not off doing stuff on his own. The Father's not off doing stuff on his own. The Spirit's not off doing stuff on his own. They're working together. Why does Jesus pray in John 17 that we might be one as he and the Father are one? Mind, will, and emotions constitutes a person. I remember when I was in a church and I said that Satan was a person. Somebody came up vehemently after that and rebuked me and said, he's not a person. He doesn't have a mother, doesn't have a father. I said, no, 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 no. People have a mind, will, and emotions. That makes them persons. But persons are simply entities that have a mind, will, and emotions. Demons are persons. The devil is a person. He's not a a human. And so what's being presented here by Jesus is, again, an affirmation of the Trinity, a teaching of Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together, one God, three persons, willingly, not in coercion, Fulfilling the plan and purpose of God. And what the Pharisees were doing, as we see from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is that they were calling the Holy Spirit an unholy spirit. That's blasphemous. They were saying by very nature that Jesus, not just Jesus, but the ability of Jesus to do this, the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't even recognize the Holy Spirit as being holy, they were saying, we don't deny the miracles. We don't deny the supernatural ability. We are going to attribute it to Beelzebub. And that is precisely, that in itself is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, well, can't somebody do something that is a rejection of Jesus? Yes, as long as you have breath and the ability to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, 
you are responsible to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's fundamental to understanding salvation. That's fundamental to understanding forgiveness. That's the whole message of the gospel in a nutshell. Repent and follow Jesus. These Pharisees, these scribes had already made up their mind as to the identity of Jesus. Out of the overflow of the heart, their mouths were speaking and they were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They were in an unforgivable state. Listen, it is possible to commit sin and to be forgiven. It is not possible to be in an unforgivable state and then find yourself being able to repent and be forgiven. If you and I reject Jesus, we will go into an eternity separate from Jesus and be in an unforgivable state headed for the lake of fire. But as for the sin that these Pharisees were committing, the unpardonable sin, it was to attribute the works of Jesus while they were in his presence, witnessing them for themselves, to Satan. Bad thing. Overflow of the heart, they're doing that. Now, Peter, for example, look with me at Luke chapter 22. Peter, for example, committed something that you might have committed on probably more than at least the three occasions that Peter does. Look with me at Luke chapter 22. Because you might wonder, is there something that I've done that God wouldn't forgive me? This is pretty significant what Peter does. Then they seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. The first of three. After being warned in advance, you're going to do this. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. You can begin to hear the agitation in Peter's voice elsewhere in another gospel. It says he called down curses. That's how ticked he was. And after an interval of about an hour, Peter's had plenty of time to contemplate, plenty of time to reflect on being warned in advance. After a period of about an hour, still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Indication seems to be that Jesus and Peter are within earshot of another. Jesus is close enough to Peter that when Peter does it the third time, Jesus looks at him. It's a moment of eye contact that makes it into the record of Scripture. How would you like to be Peter? How would you feel if you were Peter? The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Wouldn't you do that? How many times have we heard from the Spirit of God telling us, don't do this, do that, and we deny and we resist until finally we repent, and God takes us to that deeper place with the Lord How grateful I am, how grateful you should be for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who helps us repent. Peter, the end of John's gospel goes back to fishing and Jesus says three times, not a coincidence, to this man who denied him three times, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed them. I didn't call you to go back to what you used to do in life. I'm calling you to a new 
ministry, a ministry of taking care of the flock of God. It's indication in scripture that Peter not only repented, but that Peter was forgiven. You can be forgiven. There's nothing that you have done that cannot be forgiven. You cannot, you will not commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Somebody wonders, well, can a Christian commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No, you can't. Look with me at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Look with me at Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. See, when you are a believer, when you are a Christian, when you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 are important to remember because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means God, the word that's used there for Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look at this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Luke 6, 45. The importance of the heart being the place of origin for all the comments of the mouth. It's significant what comes out of your mouth because it reveals what's in your heart. And this is what Romans is helping us understand. With the heart, one believes. The Pharisees did not believe. A state of permanent rejection of Jesus. A state of unforgiveness that would never be pardoned. What they say about the Holy Spirit is simply a reflection. It's simply a symptom of the real problem those guys had. To see Jesus do those miracles, to know what the Old Testament taught about what they should be looking for in the Messiah, to see all of that, and while they're watching to make their determination to have the gavel come down on the wrong side of the issue leaves them in a state of permanent rejection apart from God unpardonably. They came to that conclusion because of the condition of their heart. And a Christian cannot commit that because with the heart you believe and are justified. And with the mouth you confess and are saved. And so a follower of Jesus Christ cannot commit the unpardonable sin because your heart is new. You've been given a new heart. And therefore, what comes out of your mouth is a profession and a confession that you are his and he is yours. Can I get an amen for that? Yes, like Peter, you will do things that you shouldn't do. You will drop the ball. I've done it. I unfortunately know enough about myself to know I will do it in the future. However, as for committing the unpardonable sin, which will put me into a state of permanent separation from Jesus Christ, he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Now, we've got a couple of minutes here. I realize that you might have a question after I've tried to do my best to answer that simple question. You might have a question in response to the answer. If you do, if you need some clarification on something, put your hand up. We'll get you a microphone and you can ask it. There you go. Well, thank you for your braveness and your boldness. Give that man a round of applause. How about that? Thank you, uh, Pastor Mike. Question is, in relation to the work of Jesus being associated or uh, giving credit to the devil, Prior to coming to know who Jesus is, I myself thought I was God. Um, not in a sense that I thought I could do everything, but I could control everything in my own life. 
So is there some kind of correlation to me thinking prior to becoming or knowing who Christ is in my life? Is there association to then that being um, could be coming blasphemy because I don't need a God. I don't I can do everything. I'm narcissistic. I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I don't need anybody. I'm self you know, relying on me. Yes, yes, great question. Actually, that's the reality we're all in. We're all following ourselves or somebody else before we come to know Christ. Can I get an amen for that? We're all doing that. It's just a matter of which God we're serving. And in fact, that's the whole challenge and battle of being a living sacrifice. The tendency of a living sacrifice is to go, is to crawl off the altar. That's why surrender is so important. It's the sweetest word in the Christian's vocabulary. We are to surrender and to keep surrendering. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of Mark when he shows up on the scene, repent and keep repenting, believe and keep believing. We had that moment of salvation where we cross over, we're given a new heart, Jeremiah 29, we're given the, the, the new heart that's part of the new covenant. And then after that, it's a matter of continuing to walk with Jesus. So no, you would not be in jeopardy of having committed the unpardonable sin before you gave your life to Christ because then, there were, number one, Jesus says it's, there's something that's unpardonable and the whole idea of salvation and grace and undeserved favor is that all of your sins, not in the part but in whole, were forgiven by Jesus. That's how great our God is. And so the message of salvation is that anybody can be forgiven. The issue that the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of is what I had already explained about, attributing the works of Jesus to Satan, that they were that, that deceived and they had concluded the wrong thing about Jesus and therefore there now is no forgiveness for them left. That's a good question. Thank you. Other hands? Question? So far we're lopsided. We got a question over there. How about over here? There we go. Good. My question is, say I'm a a secular dude, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm a humanist. I think everything begins and ends with what is human. Mm -hmm. That's where my worldview um, is fully centered. Mm -hmm. And uh, I see what's happening in churches around the country, and uh, and it worries me, it troubles me. It looks evil to me. Mm. And I think it might be voodoo or witchcraft or something like that. Uh, Does that kind of breach the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Good question. What types of things are you referring to? Uh, perhaps I see lives being changed, a healing, lots of money pouring into the church. It looks like a cult to me. Gotcha. Yes. Um, no, that is not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's a pre-salvation perspective. Paul, as you remember, is one of the biggest guys persecuting the church Paul, the apostle on his way to Damascus, very clearly felt that Christians were erroneous and that they were perverting the way of God and gets, gets a revelation from Jesus that these Christians are the right way. And Paul refers to himself as a blasphemer and a violent man. Wow. But yet he was not beyond the saving reach of God. Okay, because he acted in ignorance, he says. Pharisees were not acting in ignorance. The Pharisees and the scribes were acting in hardness of heart, carefully examining what Jesus did and then deliberately, purposely coming to the conclusion that that's not God, that's the devil. So, excellent question. Yes, go right ahead. So, today you preached that um, somewhere in your, the scripture you were saying about, I think it was in Revelations, how... People who die will come up from Hades and sit in judgment. So if you die un- unrepentant, 
and you go to Gehenna, then um, when Jesus uh, comes back, when those thousand years start or whatever, and he calls everybody for judgment, do those people get a second chance? Good question. First of all, nobody's getting thrown into Gehenna. The hell of torment that's in the Bible in Revelation 20 is like, the closest thing that they could understand it to be like, humanly speaking, Jesus was saying, was like Gehenna. But it's far worse than that. Does that make sense? So, Gehenna is a sampling or a taste, a foretaste of the ultimate Gehenna, the capital G, Gehenna, the real hell, the eternal hell. So, the Bible does not teach a second chance. Once you're in the lake of fire, you're in the lake of fire. And, it ha- and you're there forever. Uh, people would say, well, why, how could a loving God do that? I'm glad that you're concerned about a loving God. The way to deal with that is to start dealing with our own sin. And so w- when God says, it's, that's it, it's finished, it's finished. And so the lake of fire is eternal and it's forever. And there will be no second chance based on what the scriptures teach. We know that people postulate about that but you don't get that teaching from the Bible. We know that that teaching is out there. Some of you have heard it, right? But you cannot get that teaching from what the Bible teaches. And that's why evangelism, that's why living right for Jesus is so important in the here and now because there is a finality to the time in which we have to repent and live for Jesus. Does that answer your question? Yes, calls them up from Hades to be judged. But then they go back down. So then they go back down. Yeah, the, the, they get called up from Hades because of the great white throne judgment. They don't get call, called up from Hades to get a second chance. Does that answer your question? Good. Back there. So it seems like the harshest judgment of God is for those people, Old Testament and New Testament, who have seen things happen with their own eyes and then decide to reject, such as the Hebrews leaving Egypt, seeing all of the miracles involved with crossing the Red Sea and all of the plagues, and then still rejecting by building for themselves a golden idol, or in the case of Jesus' time where they're in his presence seeing the miracles firsthand. That's exactly right. So that the harshest judgment seems mm-hmm. to be for those who see things firsthand and then reject. That's exactly right. The famous passage in the book of Hebrews, for it is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, some people take that passage of Scripture. I would believe that good people disagree. They would take that passage of Scripture, take it out of context and say, see, you can lose your salvation. no. It's possible to taste of the Holy Spirit and to see the miraculous hand of God, to be in the midst. There's this idea in the scriptures of individual salvation and corporate salvation, group salvation and individual salvation. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about eternal salvation and and the forgiveness of sin. The Israelites were saved en masse out of Egypt, right? So 
it's possible to be in a group of people and to taste the Holy Spirit, to see the miraculous works of God, to see God moving in power, and after that, not be convinced and to reject. Well, if you're not going to repent and acknowledge Jesus and live for God after having that kind of an example of a testimony and being in the midst and tasting the Holy Spirit and seeing the ministry of God, then what else is going to convince you? Make sense? So that's what we believe here. We believe that that passage doesn't deal with salvation. It deals with uh, passages of Scripture of warning people to pay attention when God is moving in your life and you're among a group of people, a movement of God, and God is speaking to you. Do not harden your heart because this idea of thinking you might have a second chance might come up short in the future. You might not have the second chance that you think might be coming. Other questions here? I'm a little nervous here. That's okay. Uh, I'm not sure I have a question, but maybe a statement that I would like for you to uh, say, yeah, you're on the right track or you're not. Uh, In Revelations 3.20, Mm -hmm. we're told, uh, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Mm-hmm. And we see Christ as being the one standing at the door knocking. And then, of course, we have to respond by first hearing and then secondly, by opening the door. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel if the impardonable sin is committed, that Christ is not even standing at the door and knocking. Mm-hmm. I, in, in my mind, and I guess this kind of, Maybe I'm, I'm just making it too simplified. But in, in my mind, if you think you have committed the impardonable sin, you haven't. That's excellent point. Excellent point. If you think you've committed the unpardonable sin, you have not. I'll tell you why. Because your heart would be soft. The Pharisees, that wasn't even on their radar. Weren't even concerned about the real condition of their hearts. And they spoke out of the overflow of their heart. They were in that state of unrepentance, that state of denial. And that's that position that caused them to say things that were the overflow. And that's exactly right. That's an excellent point. And by the way, that passage, that's the last question for today. Thank you for asking that one. That passage, Revelation chapter 3, is primarily spoken to the church. In the book of John, we see Jesus letting himself into the church, into where the believers were while the doors and windows were locked. So we know that Jesus doesn't have a problem getting through doors and windows. You can't keep Jesus out if he wants to get in. But in Revelation chapter 3, we learn that Jesus wants to be invited into his church. Oftentimes we see that as a salvation passage, but that's a passage spoken in its context to the church that the church must let Jesus in to do what? To rule and to reign and to be the chief shepherd among the people. That's why it's so important here for me, for the elders, for the deacons, for the pastoral staff to continually be inviting Jesus to do what? To come in. We're not going to lock Jesus out of his own church. Can I get an amen for that? We want Jesus to rule and to reign in the body of Christ in the church. He's the chief shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. I'm the lead pastor with a small L. He's the lead pastor, capital L, capital P. Can I get an amen for that? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast. 
where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.